Welcome to the RW Plus B Podcast. Hey, welcome to the very first episode of the RW Plus B Podcast. Now, if you go to rwplusb.page, you'll find everything you need to know about the brand. Um, but there are multiple websites. I'm on TikTok, uh, Facebook, uh, Substat. I'm all over the place. I love to write. I love to try to unite. Um, God, that was cheesy. Anyways, so the point of this show is basically meant to be a commentary on everyday life. And I will most episodes try to bring on a guest that I think presents an interesting um, stance that needs to be heard. Um, Today, for our very first episode, I brought on someone that I think, honestly, was a perfect fit for the circumstance. Um, This was the first time I have spoken with this person um, outside of just a you know, um, a friendly little back and forth on online uh, to set this up, essentially. But um, I think it went very well. I hope you enjoy. I am very aware that it is a very small audience that I am trying to target with this, and I hope I have reached you. Um, so, yeah, feel free to reach out to me uh, if you want to be on the show, if you have comments on how I can improve, etc. Um, and uh, let's dive in. I, and for the record, real quick, by the way, I plan on posting these the second and fourth Thursdays of each month um, when I'm able to do so. Um, so yeah, now let's dive in. Hey, this is Sharon uh, from Tempe. Hey, this is, uh, this is Red. Thanks for calling. Glad we were able to finally put this together. Yeah, yeah, man, these kids, they're anti-revolutionary. <laughs> you know, there's a fighting spirit that I have to appreciate in my kids, and I, I presume in, that you have in yours as well, and it, it's a good thing for the future, I'd say. Oh, for sure, for sure. I have too many, they're going to unionize, they already have. <laughs> See, that's the problem, though, they're going to get to the point where they are so strong in their convictions that you are going to become anti-union just because they are going to unionize your household. <laughs> no, that's so funny, too, because it's, it's interesting how those power dynamics and being on one side of them or the other can influence how you feel about things. Yeah, exactly. Or just the, uh, the, the desire to reach that power dynamic, at least. Um, yeah. For for a lot, especially in the working class, I, I constantly feel like, and, and I've had it proven to me multiple times. People just straight up telling me when I ask, because I'm I'm always like, hey, are you this way because you think one day you're going to be rich and then finally you can like stick it to everyone else? And basically, they're always like, yeah, I mean that that's the dream, isn't it? And it's just like, oh wait, that's what the American dream is supposed to be now. <laughs> yeah. No. There's two American dreams. There's, like, becoming the rich boss CEO, and then there's, like, 
getting a settlement that buys you a house. Like, there's two sides. Those are the only two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the American dream at this point, and, and kind of always, has been basically to live like the average European. And I've never understood why we're supposed to be proud of that, but... <sighs> I digress. Yeah, uh, so, so I know on your channel, one of the things that was catching my eye, it seems like you've been kind of having an ongoing battle. I'm not sure how much you're able to speak to on that subject, um, especially if there's, you know, ongoing drama. But um, is that something that you kind of wanted to touch on? Yeah, I'm totally fine with speaking on that. Um, something interesting about, like, employment law cases like this is, like, I didn't sign anything when I was fired, so anything I may have signed before I was fired would have applied while I was employed, and they can't limit my speech while I'm employed. So anything I would have signed allows me to speak right now. Okay. Um, so yeah. <laughs> okay, just making sure. I, the uh, So this is actually uh, just, you know, a little off the table kind of thing that's going to get put out anyways because I don't care. Um, but this is my second attempt recording uh, such a thing for this specific new podcast. I've done multiple interview things in the past. Um, but the first one, it's, it was with a good friend of mine, but at the end he told me he wanted some stuff cut out. And the problem is I right now am in the middle of the country where the Internet is basically you know, non-existent. So to make, it, uh, to make the edits required and then post it, it was just going to be a titan requirement, you know, and I was like, I need to put that one on the back burner. So this is going to be attempt number two. So if, if we can avoid having to make, you know, edits, uh, that is awesome. So, <laughs> um, I am all for the, you know, the, you saying that you can be on record or whatever. So yeah, wh what's going on exactly in that situation? Yeah. So I worked at DoorDash in their IT department and, um, there's so much going on, but it kind of seemed like nonstop drama in the department, bad treatment from managers, um, not really any clear directions on how to do our job, but then also being criticized for not doing things a certain way. It was, it was all very strange. And yeah. um, my coworkers and I, my, my team mainly, we initially were just thinking, hey, we can start asking for better um, from our manager. And that didn't get anywhere for months. Um, I went to the next manager, her manager, um, and he said a lot of kind of rude and offensive things to me. Um, and right around then was when I was like, this is the process the company tells me to take, and it's not going to go well. Because yeah. I've already gone to my boss's boss. Um, so, yeah. So, at that point, I kind of started talking to unions, um, trying to figure out, like, what even is a union in this context? Because um, here in Arizona, we don't have a lot of unions. And when you yeah. talk to people um, about unions, literally the only thing I've heard from people out here about unions is like, you mean UFCW, the grocery store union. Yeah. Well, my, my aunt worked at a UFCW grocery store. She said they suck. Um, and... and when I say people have given me that exact same kind of argument about that exact same union and that exact same industry, that's all I've heard from people. Yeah. So it, it, it almost didn't even seem like a union per se was necessary. It seemed like what we just needed to do was come together as workers and use our influence and power. Yeah. Um, 
So we kind of continue to do that without having a union involved at all. Um, we would just talk about our issues, our complaints, things like that, and then we would go ahead and um, bring them to management, who would then ignore it. <laughs> um, so there was this huge scenario where we were told that phones were going to be added to our workload. And that was something that the team was unanimously against. We did not take phone calls, um, and we were already overworked. We worked out of tickets. Um, so, you know, your computer's broken. You could send an email. It would make a ticket for us. Okay. Um, and um, just so, just to make sure, so when you're saying you could, uh, the phone call situation, I know in the past whenever I've ordered stuff like uh, groceries, Instacart, you know, whatever, um, I'll get like a thing where it's like, hey, do you need to contact the driver? Maybe it's to give them an update or something. Is that what you're referring to? or? No, so I was in the IT department. So oh, um, okay. kind of how okay. that would work is like say your driver um, is trying to call you through the app and it's not working, so they yeah. reach out to customer service. And then that customer service person's like, oh, crap, my computer's not working. That's when I would talk to somebody. I would talk to that customer service person about their computer. Gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, but, yeah, so phones were supposed to be added to our workload, and talking to my manager, talking to her manager, it just nobody was listening to us. Yeah. And a lot of people were talking about quitting, just group quitting. And that's when I was really like, why would we do that? Like, why would we quit? Like, who, who is going to be impacted by us quitting except for the next people who have to come into this crappy workplace even more understaffed? Yeah. Um, so that was when we were like, okay, let's escalate this. So we ended up talking to an HR person that wanted us to talk to director-level people, like people with, not director-level, chief of people, like... <laughs> I'm not going to give the exact titles, but these are yeah. very high up people in the company and at DoorDash. This is a pretty big company. Yeah. Um, so we went really, really high up um, without a union, without anything like that, just as workers together. And um, in that meeting, myself and a couple of other workers talked for a really long time, like an hour and a half to these super high up people. And a couple, like, in the meeting, they told us, oh, phones are what's making you guys so upset. Like, you know, we told them there were a lot of other things, too, yes, but phones are what's going to make us quit. This was on a Friday, and phones were literally supposed to be put up and running on Monday. Yeah. Um, so, th so they said, no, we're not doing that. If y'all are going to quit over this, we're not doing phones. So they canceled the phones thing. Um, and then a couple of hours later, we get the update that, my boss's boss, who was super rude to me every time I talked to him, um, he had left the company. And hmm. it, it was the most energizing day of my life. Like, we had gone through months and months of feeling powerless. Yeah. And then just a couple of weeks of coming together, and it seemed like we were moving the earth. To have bones canceled after months of our boss and our boss's boss telling us that it was never going to happen, that phones were always going to be on the table, and then also having that boss's boss leave the company, when a lot of us really felt like he was a big part of the problem in our department, it felt good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
I mean that. I mean that's just that's a powerful moment for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I like when I say that I've never been like had more adrenaline than when that was announced that that person left the company. Yeah, and felt more powerful. I can't describe the power, like being a lowly, you know, first tier IT person having that influence somehow. Yeah, I mean, any any time you can make that kind of mark against a, a machine that just seems unstoppable, I mean, it, it's it's like beating a boss in a video game. I, I feel like for a lot of people, so you know, I def I I'm definitely excited to hear that. But obviously, you know, things took a you know south turn. Was it shortly after? Or? Oh yeah, it was it was basically <laughs> as soon as possible after the retaliation started, which was extremely frustrating for a number of reasons, but in part because these high up executive level um, people literally said, Oh, if your boss tries to fire you, they have to go through me first <laughs> and we were like, Oh cool. Yeah. So we're not going to get fired. I was fired less than a month later, like three weeks later. <laughs> now, now, was that boss fired first, or was that just talk? Nope. So she fired me, and oh. I, at this point, I highly doubt that they, like, you know, they're in a court case. If they fire that manager, it probably would look like an admission of sorts. So I yeah. think they stuck with her for a minute. Gotcha. Okay, fair enough. And um, so what what steps have you taken since to uh, try to right this obvious wrong? Um, yeah, so at first, now, between that, actually, right after that win, pretty much, I was urged by a friend to join the IWW. He was like, he was kind of helping me figure out my next steps, um, but subtly saying he should join the IWW. Um, he advised at least a dozen times for me and my team to not do this meeting with upper leadership. He was like, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't do it. And if you do do it, you should lower your expectations and not ask for the phones to be off the table because basically his, his thinking and a lot of IWW thinking is you don't want to bring all of your coworkers into a situation where they're going to lose, especially if it's your first big action. Yeah. Um, that's, that just really sets up for, for, bad vibes um but we won <laughs> so i told him and he was just like i that is insane i've never heard anything like that in my life join the iww you need help now there is a target on your back yeah <laughs> so i was like yeah you're, you're right uh so and management had kind of been getting a little not super cool with me for a little while before that because i it was pretty clear that i was for the fellow worker and my manager and I were really cool for a while until basically it would be cool with her or advocate for my fellow worker and I know what I'm going to choose um, so yeah so I joined the IWW basically right then and the very next week um, the very next day the managers told us we couldn't get any more overtime hmm. <laughs> and I had a lot of weeks where I got 40 hours of overtime in a week. My average was 20 hours of overtime every single week. But immediately after that meeting, we could no longer get overtime, which is a pretty classic um, bit of retaliation. Yeah. But we were all trying to not 
freak ourselves out. <laughs> so we were saying, well, her boss just got fired, so like maybe she's nervous. I don't know. But at the end of the day, the work still needed to get done, and she's choosing to have no one do it instead of us getting overtime. Which obviously, I'm, I'm assuming, just piles up on the back end, right? Or is it the kind of thing where it literally would just technically fall off, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, it just made everything so much harder when yeah. uh, everybody was in working. And then, it, in retrospect, I believe one of my fellow workers was a little closer to management than I realized. And I believe he was picking up some overtime because tickets were getting done during times when other people weren't authorized to work yeah. by him. Yeah, there's always the one, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you just have to... Make sure you keep it in perspective to not have resentment for, like, your fellow worker because yeah. it's the system. Like, they, he was just as happy for our wins as the rest of us, but his livelihood, his family, you know, the system is putting him up against the worker power. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and that's why so many people feel just completely defeated because I, I, I know, and, and see, I, it, it's a context I know yourself, you know, that you can get and and I, I saw firsthand too growing up in the South, but you see these people around you and they, they're, they're what they would, you know, they, they consider themselves strong, um, Americans, like that they define themselves as Americans proudly and they feel like they've done everything right their entire lives, but the system is just pushing on them and they don't know how to respond to that. Um, and I don't know, perhaps that's a situation too, like he felt like he needed to, you know be you know a rat and I, I at the same time i i get that even if i don't respect it so yeah I, I get where you're coming from on that yeah for sure and you know the biggest thing is is that none of that would be possible in a different system and none of that would be possible without management being willing to engage in that behavior yeah. of that preferential treatment and retaliation Honestly, I, I thought these companies were getting a little bit better, uh, these specific ones at least, um, only because recently I had an interaction where I, I had ordered uh, Uber Eats, um, and the driver came, and he actually went to the wrong building. He went like a building over, and I'm talking to him on the phone, trying to guide him, and he's insisting he's at the right place, and he's increasingly becoming irritated, and if you can't tell um, by the way I talk... <laughs> I'm not the type that gets angry very easily. Um, so it's weird for me, the guy who's waiting for the food that's actually like 20 minutes late, to not be mad, uh, apparently, according to some people that overheard the conversation. Um, but this guy should be getting super angry. Um, by the time he finally figures out, hey, I'm right, um, he comes over, brings the food, and chews me out, actually tells me to, uh, to suck his dick and all these this other awful stuff. Um, I'm just like, okay, dude, I hope you have a great rest of your day or whatever. And he continues kind of berating me as he walks off. Um, you know, I get in and uh, they, I'm, I'm, in, I'm told, hey, reach out to the customer service people um, or, or whatever, the customer complaints. And I'm not the one that typically will do something like that. But I was like, you know, this guy's probably having a bad day. But at the same time, that wasn't cool. Um, there were some kids around. I, I went ahead and, and tried to put in a complaint. Um, I'm still not sure if that was the right decision because I'm always weird about putting in complaints, but I did it. Um, Uber's response was to literally defend the guy. Like, they basically were like, yeah, nothing wrong happened, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
that kind of got on my nerves a little bit, but I figured that that response meant that maybe they were treating the drivers a little better. Um, but I guess like most industries, <laughs> I was wrong and that was just a weird case. Yeah. And like, um, I'm not sure if that would have anything to do with like the Uber leaks that just came out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but like, I don't know. I think one of the things with these customer service and I didn't work in customer service or really with the customer service people besides like just for their tech support. Yeah. Um, but I get the sense that customer service is like a number situation where maybe um, a, a customer service person starts their eight hour day and can give X amount of dollars in refunds or um, if the algorithm spits out X number, you can give a refund. And if it doesn't give you the numbers for refunds, then you have to start defending what happened. Is the sense that I get. So I'm like kind of giving that allegedly um, I feel vibe, you know, but that's what I think is going on. I mean, okay, so just a little bit of experience uh, history. Um, I, my first jobs were like just, you know, uh, before I was legal age, like landscaping and stuff with people, but when I got into, like, legal age, I was doing, like, Sonic and then Target and Dillard's and all these places. So, in, uh, at one point, even, like, an, uh, uh, a phone person that would take appointments um, in, in Texas specifically, they had it to where any time that you called a car dealership, um, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this if any of these people hear this, but no, they won't because they're not going to be part of this niche market. Anyways, um, if you called a, a car dealership in the Houston area, there was a good chance that you weren't talking to that dealership. You were talking to some dumbass like myself who was making an appointment for you to get your car fixed or whatever. And um, across all of these jobs, I 100% agree that that is not only the vibe um, that I've gotten to, uh, I can actually confirm that whenever I was a, an assistant store manager at a uh, GameStop of all places, that that's essentially what the concept is. It's it's literally like Moneyball with human beings uh, like direct livelihood um basically if you're not producing properly enough it's not worth it um yeah so i mean it's just that (laughs) cold-hearted reality right yeah no and this makes me think of like so pre-pandemic i had a job at a job board where i was working at home um and um like it was customer service and I worked in the office part-time, worked at home part-time. It was a good gig. And something that I really liked about it was that refunds were at our discretion. Okay. Um, as, as just regular frontline customer service people. And that changed when the pandemic hit because uh, it was a job board. <laughs> and they were like, oh shit, no one has jobs. No one wants jobs. No one's hiring. Yeah. Um, but there's really something about that, like, almost agency that made me feel more respected at this pretty average mid-ass job. Um, but just knowing that if I felt like this customer should have their money back, I could give them their money back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, see, it's the small things like that. Like, whenever I would work at any of these other places, especially Dillard's, it was really bad. Like, you, you would follow the store policy, which is, hey... Uh, like this person bought these shoes, they brought them home. They obviously wore them to an event. Now they're just trying to wear them because they don't think they'll ever need them again. They're trying to play the system. 
And you know, as an employee, that if you take these back, you're going to get in trouble. So you have to be like, sorry, you know, I'm not doing it. And then the person screams at you. And you're like, fine, let's go ahead and play the little, you know, theatrical game that we have to all do. And then you call the manager over. And they just, they're just like, yeah, you know, give them the return. Why are you being like this? Throwing you under the bus for following policy. Yes. So, yeah, I agree. It's that, it's that small, it's the small things. Like something as simple as that. Just making you actually feel respected. That's a big thing. Yeah, and then it's funny that you mentioned Sonic, too, though, in there, because my first job was at a Sonic, and I, as a teenager, Sonic was an adorable job. I really yeah. feel like it was. <laughs> well, Sonic was weird because, you know, as a teenager, I didn't, I, I actually, again, that landscaping work and all that stuff, I did not mind hard work, and I was from a poor family, too, where, you know, there were some weeks I was just like, what are we going to eat this week? So... That job actually was pretty cool to a teenager myself. Again, too, I just had to walk down the street from the high school, like, 20 minutes. Boom, I'm at work. I work until midnight. They're, the pay check itself isn't great, but I'm getting these tips. And the boss at oh that one... Oh, my God. And the boss at that location was a gigantic crackhead. And I loved her to death, but I really wish she would get help. But she was cool in the sense that she knew that we knew what was going on, and she was doing it at work. Um, so and as a thank you, I guess, she didn't, like, report our tips. <laughs> so we yeah. were taking that the, all of those just straight home. And it was beyond helpful, as a, again, as a teenager from a broke family. I mean, it was heaven at the time. I mean, looking back on it, it was a nightmare, <laughs> I guess. But at the same time, I really appreciated it then. Yeah, and it's so funny, too, because when you say tips, um, outside of, like, the South, and I mean, like, Bible Belt South, yeah. there is not a big tipping culture at Sonic. Yeah. Like, when I would visit people from out of state, and we would go to Sonic, and I'd be like, here's, you know, give this to them, it's a tip, and they'd be like, you tip yeah. at Sonic? Like, yeah, what do you mean? When I, like, down south, you worked at Sonic for the tips. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I actually, I travel all around the country um, for my wife's job. And um, I, I, I've been literally to every little section, basically, at this point. And, yeah, anytime I've been to a Sonic that's not in the, like, in the south or in very specific um, kind of conservative S, you know, kind of states or whatever, um, I, I don't know why. But especially because liberals and, and every, everyone left of that are usually considered like really good tippers, especially if they're millennials. But for some reason, if you leave those conservative areas tip like and give a tip to a Sonic employee, they almost look shocked. So Yes, yes. No, I've given a tip to a Sonic employee that was like, you know, like a you know, 50% tip, but on yeah. like a $10 order. So it's yeah. not crazy. Like down south, like that was not like a big huge it's a big tip but it's not like so abnormal that you're like showing everybody at the store and that's exactly. what this kid did i was like oh my god yeah i mean in the south you'll go from a real a legit smile and a you know a sincere thank you and then in the north you're gonna have them standing there pissing themselves being like what what do i do with this am i allowed to do this yes yeah and I don't know what it was in your store, but I feel like the tip wage was only a dollar less, and we were getting paid like six dollars an hour minimum wage. So a dollar less wasn't <laughs> that that you know that little. But I, admittedly, I can't remember the exact pay at the time. Um, uh, uh, 
it, it might have just been basic minimum wage because I do feel like I was a little excited because I was working there the last time minimum wage actually increased. Um, I believe the last time yeah. increased. So I do remember it going up and being happy. So I maybe it was minimum wage that I was making. Um, yeah, but I know it wasn't any $2 an hour or anything like that. Yeah, it, it wasn't like some of the, the big restaurants do. It, it, I think you're right. I think it was normal minimum wage. It still wasn't enough even then to, like, do anything with. Because um, I remember even then I wasn't able to get a, a, a um, an apartment with my band. Um, so, I mean, if it wasn't enough for that then, for all three of us working, I guess, you know. Or maybe that's just Houston, Texas was that bad. Yeah, I was in a very rural place in North Carolina, so admittedly, I absolutely oh. could have had a meager existence on my chest, but I could have lived on it, you know, and then tips would have gotten me, you know, some crappy weed or something like that. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> that's actually funny. Whenever I was at Sonic, I found a, a plug actually in town, and... Um, the, this guy who just gave me a, a phone number, he's like, yeah, call this guy. He's better than me. And I was just like, okay, that's weird that you're deflecting me, but fine. <laughs> uh, that's so good. I call this number, and this guy just pulls up to the very last stall. It's like 11.50. We close at midnight. Um, they're not even supposed to keep me past midnight, but they do all the time. Um, and, you know, I get a little buzz on the, on the ear set or whatever. And I, I answer it, and the guy's just like, yo, come out. And in my head, I'm like, okay, what if it, if, what if someone else had answered this? But, um, I come out and it's this dude and just this like gold colored Cadillac. He has a, a grill of all things, which was still a thing at the time. And it's literally just the quickest transaction, just, you know, handbag walkway. Um, but just the hilarity because it seemed like something straight out of a movie walking up on this guy. Like he was like a stereotypical, um, dealer that you would just see in Hollywood films, you know, um, that has just stuck with me. So that's actually a weird memory you just brought up because of that. I have a very similar story, except for my dude uh, was in the yearbook as a Ronald Weasley lookalike. So <laughs> a little different. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually even better. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, that's so funny about... I don't know, the tipping cultures, and especially, I think it's different when you're talking about when the wage is like $2 an hour, but yeah, but yeah to have a place where teenagers can go with, make minimum wage and get tips, like that's common in the South, I feel like. Yeah, and at my location, I, they understaffed for sure, but I think it's just because of the way I work, because I would show up, and it would be me and that manager I mentioned earlier, and... She would basically make all of the drinks and cook all of the food. And I would take the orders and bring them out. And it was in a very busy section of town. So when it became, like, as soon as I got out of school and happy hour hit, we were swamped for those, like, two hours, like, for a two, three-hour period, really, um, of just, like, nonstop movement. Um, but I think they thought they could get away with it at the time. Um but even then, again, as a teenager, as you said, and, you know, it, it just, it, it is a good thing having those opportunities. I just wish that, um, I wish it still paid more, obviously, looking back on it. But uh, it, for a legit starter job, at least for what it was for me, yes, it was, it was beneficial. Yeah, yeah, and they just don't. 
Vegas don't really do that anymore. Where yeah, it is mostly teenagers and then like their adult manager. Yeah. Um, everyone in the kitchen was a full grown adult, you know, who needed way more money to survive and didn't get tips. Yeah. But yeah, so um, with uh, kind of getting into the IWW, yes. I started also connecting with like more people in the labor movement out here, and there's a good bit going on in the fast food sphere. I haven't heard anything about Sonic, but um, lots of fast food strikes are kind of going unremarked on, um, but they're happening for that fight for 15, which is yes. so unfortunate because <laughs> 15 is not enough anywhere, not even in the dead of the woods in North Carolina. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm lucky, I, or at least I consider myself lucky in the sense that whenever I uh, try to have a news intake, I seek sources like, uh, like Breaking Points or even The Hills Rising, which is where those people came from previous. Um, Ralph Nader, stuff like that. I like listening to stuff like that for my news intake. So luckily, I've, I've heard of those strikes, but I agree that I've tried to check out um, just seeing what the other ones, New York Times and stuff, are reporting. And most of the time, they're not even touching on that. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, and another I agree. area is cannabis, too. The cannabis, like, like uh, so with the labor board, uh, they're starting to do what they call 10J injunctions more. And because the labor movement's so excited about that, because it used to be way more rare, most of the... 10J injunctions that have been granted get a big news story and a lot of like Twitter fanfare and stuff like that. Um, but just kind of poking around the labor board for my region, I saw a cannabis company that won a 10J injunction. The workers won a 10J injunction against the company. Hmm. And the first time I saw that, it was looking at the labor board myself and it happened a week earlier. So it's interesting that, uh, I've been talking to folks about how we have this idea of who should unionize. And this has always been the case in history. Like uh, in the 1910s and 20s, it was um, really only white male laborers should unionize. Everybody else should just be happy that they have a job. Yeah. Uh, and now it's only people in factories and should unionize. And, you know, anyone in a warehouse who unionizes should find a different job or anybody who has a higher salary than I think should unionize should try. Um, so yeah, we kind of have that, that vibe, but then also the people who you would think are most socially eligible for unionization, like these cannabis workers who get shit like key flung, you know, working without masks and having all these real world issues with their body from the work they do. And we're not advertising it. And same with food service workers, like all that grease, all that heat, everything it's hard on the body all that standing so these people who i feel like most people who have any any positive feelings about unionization think that these people should unionize and we're not hearing about it yeah i mean that that it's not often that you have a new industry in a in this country especially that is a huge industry like a legit huge industry and it's just instantly you know opens up over overnight basically but that's what this industry is and it's it's been interesting watching its growth and um, since, you know, it, since it officially opened up um, and just seeing how everyone is evolving, how it's all shaping around the edges and just, you know, all of the developments in between. So it's good to know that there are some victories taking place there, though, because I know capitalism 
instantly pushed its thumb on that you know entire field too and even though there's been you know dramatic pushback knowing that there's victories is always you know a good thing to know yeah yeah and something about the labor board is most of the cases settle um and the labor board wants you to settle and sometimes if they feel like you're too resistant to settling they're gonna they might even like issue a settlement that you have to agree to or appeal so because their goal is industrial peace it's not you know yes employee rights and i absolutely can say that they um have it, like the, their workers have a genuine concern for employee rights and making getting justice for workers, but their goal is industrial peace, which means not escalating issues, not continuing issues, not you know having animosity between worker and employer for ten years in court. Peace. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's by any means necessary, really, as long as it's within these certain parameters. And so, I don't know. I think a lot of people don't see I don't know how do I put this I I don't think that people should rely on labor law I think that that's a bad choice and quite frankly when you file an unfair labor practice charge or even when you join a business union you are taking some of your power as a worker if not all of it and putting it somewhere else whether it's a business union with executives that make a million dollars a year or whether it's the federal government um, it's no longer in your hands and so um, that's something interesting that I'm doing, I think it's interesting at least because I haven't heard of anyone else doing it um, where I am not, I haven't attached my case to my union um, and even if I did they would defer to me on any choices and I don't have a lawyer so I'm not going to run out of legal funds or anything like that um so yeah i'm going through this process just as an individual per se um and so yeah i think i'll cut cut on back to um after they took away all of our overtime um we had a couple of scenarios where my coworkers and i acted in concert acted together and that's where you're protected when you are working either on behalf of other workers or with other workers uh, to better your conditions of your workplace. And management sent me, like, direct threats for it. Even when other people were involved, I was the one who was emailed because (laughs) they knew I was the troublemaker, and that's, you know, the characterization of of most union folk, I feel like, is is that troublemaker characterization. Um. So, yeah, so I eventually got to a point where I sent an email to the managers. Um, me and a couple of my coworkers sent similar emails to all of our managers. Um, I got a response back from one manager that was like five employment rights violations in one email <laughs> and basically made my case for me. Like what she was saying was, you have no right to talk to your coworkers about your working conditions. Your coworkers should never come to you to talk about issues. You should never be considered a spokesperson for your coworkers. And it's just like that's not legal. Yeah. <laughs> so I got that email on I don't even remember, April fourth or April fifth. Um, which was about two weeks after that big meeting where we had our big win. 
Um, so she sends me this ridiculous email um, the day after I got a really good performance review. And the performance re- review, the only negative was my manager said that I cared too much about my coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, like, I got my performance review, and I sent it to, like, folks, like, at the IWW, and I was like, did my boss just give me a performance review that says starting at union? And they were like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> it kind of sounds like there were hints being dropped already. Yeah, and, you know, I, even before the union stuff was going on, I didn't, and, and almost even before I realized it, I was engaging in protected activity because I cared about my coworkers, and I think that's something that I've, I've been thinking a lot about as the court, like as the court case kind of drags on, and I have so much time to really think. And it's it's really that caring about my fellow worker without knowing that it could benefit me that yeah. benefited me the most. <laughs> it, so it, it's one of those good. funny things because you know they always want to use like buzzwords like family. That's one of the big ones. Like the place, the workplace is a family, but when you try to treat it like a real family, or at least how a non toxic family should should work, you're the troublemaker. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know they—it was a whole thing. So, and that week was a whirlwind. So, I had gotten that performance review like Monday. Um, got these crazy emails on on Tuesday or Wednesday, and then I had a, my manager called a meeting with our whole team on I think Wednesday, and was like, "Hey, uh, y'all have no right to do what you're doing." <laughs> And at one point in the meeting, I was just like, you have failed our team for a year. You are continuing to fail our team, and you have absolutely no intention of doing better for us. Yeah. Um, she called me insubordinate, and which obviously is a, a vocabulary issue, <laughs> because that's not <laughs> technically insubordination. <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, uh, I was then fired my next work day. So... Yeah, that all happened. I tried to connect with my fellow workers after that because I didn't want to file a labor board charge. Like, not, I didn't want to give my power to the federal government. I didn't want the federal government being the manager of what happens next in my union drive. Um, But everybody was too fucking scared. Like, after what happened to me and after I protected myself so solidly and it still happened to me. Um, and by protecting myself, I absolutely don't mean I did it did unionizing right. I made a bunch of mistakes because I did not have any training whatsoever. Yeah. But what I do mean is that all of my actions had legal protection to them. Um, and everybody knew it. And I would always tell, tell people before I would do something like, here's what I'm doing. Here's what protects me to do it. Uh, and I still got fired. So I waited like a week um, to see if, if there would be any change, and nobody really got back to me, so I filed the labor board charge. Um, and that initial process is really easy. You just call the labor board, and you're like, hey, here's what happened, and I think it wasn't legal. And they'll say, mm, you know, I don't know if that was illegal, or they'll say, you know what, that does sound like it was illegal, and it's it, it sounds like a violation of labor law. Yeah. They'll get the basic, most basic information as possible from you. Like, were you fired? Were you retaliated against? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then you do a big affidavit. And I specifically said that I thought I had a case for one of those 10-J injunctions. 
and it looking like that'll happen. Um, so yeah, and and I'm just in that spot that I didn't want to be in now, where there's nothing that I can do uh, to make anything go faster, to be different. I just have to wait for the federal government to tell me what's next. <laughs> And honestly, with that, you never know. Basically, it's kind of a don't hold your breath kind of situation, though. Yeah, like if they don't grant the injunction, I'm probably looking at two years before anything is settled out. And if I do get the injunction and it's granted and all of that, that could have me back in the workplace within a month from today. Yeah. Going back and unionizing and getting my back pay. So, um, the stakes are really high because if it's two years to that remedy, none of the people I worked with are probably still going to be there. Nobody's going to remember any of our big union wins. Um, it's just going to be starting from scratch, and everything I've done previously will have had no material effect on the workplace. Yeah, I mean, that, that's honestly a fair take. Um as you already mentioned, some of your coworkers are already probably, you know, beaten down by seeing you get fired too. So, the longer it goes on, obviously, the uh, the more that grows. But yeah. on the other side, I mean, that would just add to that. It'd be kind of like a, a sequel victory to that last feel good one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I don't know. I think there's there's always the chance that like the labor board's going to be like, well, they don't want to settle with reinstatement, but they want to settle with this other way, and they could force me to take some sort of settlement like that, and I think that's one of my biggest kind of fears, is that I'm going to be in a situation where settlement makes the most sense, yeah. um, not only for me, but like for the labor movement, um, and God, I have to quote Utah Phillips here, because it's something I think about all the time, <laughs> he says, he says, uh, they always tell you about the good you can do with dirty money, you know? And yeah. so I think about that when I'm also thinking about these things, where it's like, I do think I could do good with some money, but is it dirty money? And is it better to just not get dirty? So settlement thoughts are very hard for me because I feel like if I settle without being reinstated, I am literally leaving my coworkers to never have a better idea of unionizing, you know? Yeah, um, it, it could go multiple different directions. You you could still sell it as a victory, especially depending on what they make you sign, you know. Um, but you could still sell it in, potentially in a way as it's a victory, because, I mean, a victory is a victory. Um, but obviously it, it wouldn't push the movement forward quite as much, not at least in that pocket. And at this point, that's, that's what we the country is needing, more and more pockets. So, I mean, yours might not potentially add to that specific ongoing story uh, but it could still be sold as a victory and there's I wouldn't say there's any shame in that either to be fair especially when all money is dirty money one way or another yeah no that's definitely true and it's you know it's a lot to think about and it's, I think everybody is going to end up having their own math about that I keep thinking like, oh, like maybe I'll just go back to school for labor law. And then I'm like, well, <laughs> wait, so I'm just becoming a part of the system. Um, but then I'm like, but wait, I could help so many people. And I think that's kind of the conflict in big ideas 
are taking either some sort of authority, some sort of power, some sort of um, involvement with the system, the bigger your ideas get, if less people are involved. And so, especially with this case, because my other, my fellow workers are just not wanting to be involved at all, I feel like there's just a greater tendency to be making decisions based on that individual perspective. Um, no matter how many people I talk to about it who tell me, you know, that whatever happens, it's probably the best choice. I'm just like, well, but it's still a choice I have to make alone when it really is something that impacts the labor movement. Like, if I take this to court, like, it could create new precedences. It could create yes. new standards, new case laws. So, in, in you know. A, in a state that desperately needs it, especially. Yeah, well, this is federal law. Um, oh, yes, yeah, you're right, yeah. Yeah, what's interesting, though, is our current labor board, um, I think everybody knows they're the only good thing about the Biden administration, basically, is this labor board, and um, they've just straight up been like, we want to try some new, unique, creative things, because clearly companies haven't gotten the picture, based on what we've done for the past 80 years, um, that they shouldn't break the law. So, like, come at us with new ideas on how we should remedy these things. Um, and so settling also means not even really having the chance to propose any unique remedies that are maybe only now in my lifetime going to be available to, to request. Yeah. No, and, and I need I need to actually look and see who heads that actually I, I believe that was one of the positions that Pete Buttigieg was uh, actually uh, considered for or at least offered um, after he you know he bowed out you know just at the right time when he was asked to during the during the primaries and uh, I believe that was one of the positions at least and he had declined it he had rejected it because it wasn't glamorous enough it's too behind the scene behind the scenes um, and obviously, instead, now he has this role that he's, you know, botching left and right himself. But I need to see who's heading that board, right, uh, heading that department, actually, right now, just because that's one of those positions that is behind the scenes, more at least. But you can, if you really want to get stuff done, you can get a lot of stuff done there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. It's Jennifer Abruzzo, I believe it is. And... You know, it takes a lot for somebody in a high-up position in the federal government to make me believe that they actually care about people. Yeah. But, goddamn, I believe that she cares about the worker and actually has, like, a personal motivation to ensure that workers can organize. Like, she, like I really feel like to her, it's on a personal level, like, in forgiveness, but, like, as an American, to make sure that these rights are enabled. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it shouldn't be controversial to demand from your country what it has, you know, made you scream out loud as part of a, a poem and dedication to it that you're owed, you know? We're told we're, we're supposed to be owed these things for just living here, and yet, you know, <laughs> here we are. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny, too, because that kind of brings around to the whole idea of uh, our working class populace being a very litigious populace in the United States. And, I mean, I think a lot of us know that that's just objectively not true. But it's interesting how the accusation of being something can be so disempowering. Oh, yeah. Like, the accusation, of, like, 
how many of us heard about the McDonald's coffee lady and oh, how yeah, much of yeah. an idiot she was. Even to e- even Sue. <laughs> even Seinfeld made fun of her, and that was at the time like one of the most watched television shows on you know on the networks. And even yes. that show made fun of it. It was just part of an ongoing gag that you weren't supposed to, you know, you weren't supposed to take seriously. And it was it's yes. a, it was a deliberate campaign just to scorn one woman who had the nerve to try to stand up to a system. Um, and, and it wasn't even really that. It was just, hey, I'm an old woman. This coffee really was, um, you know, incorrectly handled. It has now burned me terribly. Can you please help me out? <laughs> How yeah, dare she? Yeah. No, and then, like, with that court case, too, like, uh, with a lot of court cases, she assumed a certain percentage of liability. Like, the whole settlement was X amount, less X percent because of her personal liability for her personal choices. Yeah. But, like, she got that money that she did get because she was injured, not yeah. because she's litigious. But it's just so interesting that, especially millennials who are so, as children, and like immersed in this idea that Americans and Judge Judy and all this, oh, yeah. all this stuff just like really trivializes the idea of working class people using the court system, and in a humorous way too. Personally, yeah, I think we've all taken it so personally, yeah. and so um, you know, and then coming into this space of like, well, I don't want the government involved in my stuff. Um, it's funny trying to equalize that out where it's like. Somebody accused me of being something, so I didn't want to be that thing. Now I've realized that that thing isn't so bad. Yeah. But I still don't want to be that thing for other reasons. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like so many people get the wrong idea, too. The government, they're like, well, we don't want it in our lives. And it's like, no, I get that. Like, uh, the position, uh, uh, my political positions, I mean, I'm basically a, a, I think someone once called me a libertarian on the left, basically. I want as many freedoms as humanly possible. But I understand that um, the government is a tool that we should all be utilizing uh, properly instead of letting it, you, you know, do whatever it wants and treat us like peons. Um, but so many people can't get out of that idea that they're just like, oh, well, then, you know, blah, blah, blah. It just I don't want it in my life. And it just seems like an in they, they have an anger and they just don't know how to direct it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And, you know... <laughs> I mean, it's not about being a hero, obviously, but nobody looks at the guy who's not willing to sue anybody and is like, "Yeah, you are so cool and dope, and I want to be just like you. Like, you look at the dude who, that, that guy who's going around uh, TikTok who gets jobs just to keep a keen eye on racism and then sues him, yeah. or to keep a key eye on safety violation and then sues him for whistleblowing retaliation. Yeah. Like, that guy's a hero. <laughs> you know? So it's just funny because, I don't know, this idea of, like, I won't involve myself in the court system in a, like, what's the word? Like, noble way. It's just disempowering. And yeah. we aren't supposed to realize that. And it's not to say, like, every little thing you should involve the court. But if your fucking landlord sends you a false eviction notice, like, yeah, maybe you should look and see if you can do something about it. Like, if your boss illegally fires you, maybe you shouldn't just let them deny your unemployment and move on with your life. Like, 
the power structures are different. Maybe you shouldn't sue your neighbor because they cut down a tree. Maybe you should. I don't know. But there's more nuance than just, I don't want the government involved yeah. or people sue too much or any of that. Or you should sue. You know, there's, there's somewhere in the middle and the power dynamic should always be looked at. And if a landlord fucks you over, you should always sue. If your boss fucks you over, you should always sue. That's yeah. how I feel. No, I mean, honestly, when it comes down to it, unless the person, I, I'll, I'll add an asterisk here, unless the person is being a complete and total dick and just will not drop it, um, then as, as just make sure you're punching up with your lawsuit. Otherwise, you know, as long as that's the goal, um, I wouldn't necessarily say, hey, you know, if someone cut down a tree, unless the person at that point had been, that neighbor had been literally just a terror for like nine years for whatever very you know reason and this is finally how you can maybe get them out of your area just for your own safety and peace um but yeah other than that yeah as long as you're punching up i i definitely agree like sue when you can just because if you don't it affects everyone else and they feel like they can get away with it yeah absolutely and i will never stop thinking how many people have been illegally fired and didn't even know it and it's yeah. something that you've probably experienced in Texas oh. but the amount of times I've heard somebody say my boss fired me for talking about my wages but I'm in a right to work state like the degree that we have been misled about what labor law is results in those sentences being said a lot when right to work literally has nothing to do with whether or not you can be fired for anything um, besides for not joining a union. And so it, it's difficult because for me, I'm in a space where I'm like, you shouldn't rely on labor law, but also the amount of misinformation around labor law is needs to be immediately rectified with our general populace. Yeah. Um, I, I should never be hearing somebody say, my, my, my boss in Texas can fire me for something that's federally illegal because of my state laws that have nothing to do with this firing. Yeah. Um, and the only reason that happens is because bosses have misled us. Like, our bosses at Sonic probably told us something we can't remember that influenced how we felt about labor law until we were told differently, you know? Now, uh, at Sonic, I definitely know that didn't happen because, again, my boss was a uh, crackhead, and uh, I think she's gotten clean now, actually, so power to her, but um, so our conversations never <laughs> were anything like this, uh, like about, you know, wages and really stuff like that. I can confirm that in College Station, Texas, uh, that the target there, they force you to watch at least three anti-union videos, which are actually laughably bad and are well worth the watch, though, just for the laughs. Uh, they're on YouTube, I believe. Um, and they do, like, straight up tell you that same lie. Um that you were just talking about, and at Dillard's in Bryan, Texas, I can confirm that at least back then, they also did the same thing, and even though they have um, like federal law posted up in the break room uh, at the Dillard's, um, on the men's side at least, uh, I believe on the women's side too, but even though they have that law posted up like in the break room, they also have like handwritten and like typed up notes that basically contradict it, that promote lies um, for that exact reason, to just keep people, you know, in the dark so they don't feel like they can do anything and then no one does anything about it and then you know it just continues 
Yeah, what's been super interesting to me about uh, especially the Starbucks case, but it's also happened in the Amazon case. The Starbucks case, because Starbucks is known as this company that has pretty good HR, um, pretty solid legal representation, but so many of their violations came from their employee handbook. Just simply their employee handbook. And when I was talking to the labor board, they were like, do you have a copy of the employee handbook at your job? And I was like, I don't think I do. They're like, well, we'll try and get a copy of it. And really, it's coming down to so many of these companies have had illegal shit in their documentation that workers just didn't know was illegal. And if a worker had brought this handbook by itself without any retaliation or anything to the labor board, the company would have been charged. So it's interesting. And if the labor board weren't understaffed, I'd be like, send your employee handbook to the labor board and see what happens. But they don't have enough staff for that. (laughs) Well, and the problem is is bigger than that too, because it's not just that, um, and it's not just the, the complete ignorance. It's it's direct and calculated in many times too. Uh, it was either Chris Hedges recently that I heard talking about this, or uh, maybe one of his contemporaries. It might have even been Ralph Nader on his weekly show. Um, but they were talking about how a lot of these companies they will direct uh, management to basically in, in, in behave in illegal ways, um, knowing that the penalty. Um, it, it basically a they don't think the employee is probably going to even do anything about it, and in most cases they won't. And b if they do, the penalty is basically so small and essentially a governmental slap on the wrist that it doesn't really matter either way, though. Yeah. So something interesting about my case that I've actually that just made me think you just made me think about it. So the, the job that I had before this job, um, I had. The um, God, what's the word? I was I was assuming. I'll just say that because I wanted a fancier word, but I'll say I was assuming that I was fired um, because they didn't want to pay me my maternity leave. That was my assumption um, because I had my twins, and they made me come back to work six weeks after having my twins, and then kept pushing back my maternity leave. They were like, "You're going to get this twelve weeks of maternity leave just at this." you know, three weeks after you start. Oh, just getting it six weeks after you start. And then I was getting to about two weeks away from it, and they fired me. Hmm. So anyways, I told that story, and I never sued them or anything because, quite frankly, they gave me a severance agreement, but I was didn't have a lot of money, and I have twin babies. So I took the severance instead of a gamble of a court case because I needed that money now, yeah. which is, God, how many people have been in that situation, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but, yeah, so I told my boss at this new job what had happened. And so I'm quite sure that there was some, I'm not quite sure, I'm assuming that there was some level of thinking when she was behaving in this retaliatory way towards me that this girl got screwed over after having twin babies. You think she's really going to come after me? Like, honey, have you ever heard the straw that breaks the camel's back <laughs> Yeah. You have been misled here on what I'm willing to do. And quite frankly, I was a bit of a different person. You know, after having my twins, I was just like, I'm so tired. I just don't want to fight anybody. Just give me the money and I'm going to sleep for a week, you know. Uh, but when this happened, I was like, all right, I'm angry and I'm well fed. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a fair take. I mean, sometimes bosses will get, you know, certain ideas about how they can behave. I know at Dillard's I had a, a boss who um, I don't know what his issue was, but he had this terrible attitude. His name was Edward, 
and he would come into the break room, or not the break room, the stock room in the shoe department when I worked in shoes, and he would take me back there, and he would just start berating me. And it takes a lot to get me mad, but I am from an Italian family, so respect is a big deal to me. And if you're going to come at me and yell at my face, I'm sorry, I'm going to yell right back at you. Um, and we would have these like straight-up screaming matches, and honestly, I'm not sure how I didn't get fired for any of those. Um, uh, and I'm not sure why nothing ever came of it. And looking back on it, I should have brought it to an HR thing, but I was still pretty stupid and young at the time. Um, but I felt like the fact I would yell back at him definitely kept him from doing it to any of the others because any time like he would walk up to any of the others to try to, and it seemed like he was starting wanting to start poking on him. Uh, if I was there on that shift and I, I heard that going on, I would walk up and I would start eyeing him and we would have a, you know, go around. So I, I feel like, yeah, bosses will definitely try to, you know, push you and see what they can do with their, their staff for, for some weird, I don't know calculated reason yeah DoorDash has this department called employee relations which um, I <laughs> to me I feel like that's like we have an individual problem with an employee that we want to eliminate but I don't know if that's really what their department is um, they were involved in my firing and like pretty soon after I was fired or no pretty soon after I filed my labor board case when they probably are pretty aware there's union activity in their company not just concerted activity yeah um they posted this role for employee relations or it was like a super like high up like director level role in employee relations and I'll tell you I applied for that fucking job <laughs> I applied for that job and they're like why do you want to work at DoorDash and I was like I want to work at DoorDash again and they were like why do you want this job and I was like well because I know that DoorDash has a bit of a problem with workers knowing their rights and I want to make sure workers know their rights um, Wrong I answer. didn't get the job but <laughs> it made me feel good no they were probably trying to get you know a union buster I don't know if you've seen but um it's being covered uh, on certain little spheres of the internet, at least. A lot of union uh, busters are trying to adapt what um, is being called woke language, where essentially uh, they'll just be like, actually, did you know that unions have a racist history? And, and they'll use certain buzzwords. Um, and they're, they're really trying really hard to infiltrate uh, workplaces with this narrative. And it, it really seems similar to, like, if you watch one of those uh, movies where they send, like, a a 40-year-old man, like, actor into, like, a high school role where he's supposed to be pretending like he's an 18-year-old in school, you know? It really feels yeah, like that. Like, <laughs> like it, it, you should be able to see right through it. Um, and I'm hoping most people are seeing right through it, but the fact that they're even trying is just kind of sad, you know? Yeah, yeah. And what's super fun about all of that, I say super all the time. I only realize that when I'm talking for a while. But what's fun about that is uh, the IWW uh, has a very different history from most unions. And so we have sections of our training for inoculation, which is here's what your boss is going to tell you. Um, and for the IWW in particular, we have a whole section of it that's like, here's what your boss is going to tell you. And that may be true about other unions, but it is not true about us. Like the IWW unions have a racist history. Yeah, the IWW noticed that, and that's why we started. So uh, it's a fun thing about organizing with the IWW is the things that a lot of bosses will say that business unions have to inoculate against. It's just, yeah, 
that is true about those unions, and it, you know, it may not be true about them today, and it was never true about us. <laughs> yeah. And and honestly, I mean, that's good that there's a voice out there then that can you know at least claim that. And I I know I've read a decent amount on, on the group. Um, I know they have a lot of respect, especially in the in the groups I'm uh, I guess most associated with. Um, and I actually was trying to look it up a second ago, but again, the internet out here is trash. Do you know if uh, the IWW is actually able to endorse candidates? And out of curiosity, if if you do and they are, do you know who they endorsed uh, in this last election uh, for the, uh, you know, for president? Yeah, so IWW, for its entire history, um, well, I won't say entire history. Most of our history have not been politically affiliated at all. Um, we have never endorsed a candidate that I'm aware of, and if it happened, it happened before 1930. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a pretty important thing for the IWW, especially when you're kind of getting in deeper into these red states. Um, your dues are not going to go to a political campaign in the IWW. It's never going to happen. It's never happened, and it never will happen. Okay. Yeah, as as I was saying this, I hit refresh, and it looks like, yeah, uh, I see a statement. We haven't endorsed a political candidate in 115 years, and we're not starting now. Honestly, I, I actually... I respect that mainly because um, there's a, a company that I, I I got high about a year ago and or I guess two and a half years ago and I saw an ad for a hat that said "Make America America Green Again" and I don't know why, but I love that idea, especially because I'm very eco friendly um, and I purchased it and then I and I still wear it quite often because I love that that saying because I love that it pisses off everyone. Um, because it pisses off Trump supporters because you know it's kind of mocking their hat, and also because a lot of the time they don't read it fully at first, so you can kind of see their faces like turn from a "oh hey, uh, it's a it's a Trumpster" to like within a second being like "oh no," um, and it it seems to piss off a lot of liberal people who aren't reading it either, and they're just like "oh, it's a Trump hat," so I think that's kind of funny. But I looked up the group shortly after, and I've been getting uh, you know messages and calls from them quite often. Um, and they're constantly, uh, you know, trying to get money out of me now. Um, but I found out that they had endorsed Biden in this last election. And, um, yeah, I just, I, I personally always appreciate if, you know, for these type of groups, it makes more sense for them not to. Um, because if they want to make an actual impact, they basically can't endorse. Because once they get in that game, it's, it's all gone. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, like, I think a lot of people, like, just misunderstand the politics of the working class um, because, like, yeah, there's bigotry in it. Yeah. Yes, there's bigotry in it. But what people oh, – not but. And what people are missing is that, first of all, that's intentional. And um, I've been listening to the Redneck Rising podcast, which has tons of Appalachian history. And you're talking about, like, slave codes. Like how, like, indentured servants and slaves, like, back in the big beginning of this country, would work together to better conditions. And so they literally created laws so that white people who tried to help black people were punished worse than if they were to help other white people. Yeah. Sometimes punished worse than if they had done something themselves. And so this is so deep. And people's politics are despair. So they have 
bigotry in them sometimes, but a lot of times they're not even voting out of bigotry the way people think. Yeah, the way, exactly. You know, people in blue states are like, oh, these people only voted for Trump because they're racist. I can't agree. You know, they voted because they're okay with racism. I can't agree with that. Yes. I don't agree that the only reason they vote is because of racism. It's despair, political despair and disempowerment. Yeah. Um, so there's no good reason to create, to be in it, an organization that's whole purpose is to organize the working class and empower the working class and then to hold a belief as an organization that if you voted for this person, you're probably bad or we yeah. agree with this political affiliation more than yours. Um, and I know, you know, a lot of the bigger unions have a lot of animosity um, among their ranks because, quite frankly, they're not making social changes with with their ranks. They're just making decisions that their ranks don't agree with and saying, well, you like the union. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and and I feel like people that usually make those assertions about about you know other side voters, as you know people like to label it, is is it's it's exactly that. It's an otherization, and it's it's part of that culture war distraction game that we're all supposed to be part of, where we have to file people into two sides, and we're supposed to attack, and they miss completely history, and and that's one of the most important things that we have as humans is history. And if you study history, you see that they have every reason not to trust or want to support Democrats. Now, they shouldn't want to support Republicans either, but they've made that choice just like people on, uh, you know, that have like voted for Biden, for example, feel like they made the right choice. Um, and, and Democrats in general feel like they've made the right choice because they feel like that's what's going to maybe make things a little less worse for them. Um but I feel like most people yeah. feel like they have to bite the bullet when they vote either way. Um, and while Trump did have a very rabid base of supporters that are, were very vocal, um, when you look at it percentage-wise across the entire country, it was still a rather small percent of people that behaved like in that cartoonish way that we're told you know, to laugh and mock. Yeah, yeah. And, like, um, I haven't been to where I grew up in the South since Trump was voted in. So I don't know how different it is now, but um, it, it was so much of like a mind your business culture yeah. that it's hard for me to, to know that people see people in the South as just overall people who are in your face with their horrible, mean beliefs. Yeah. Um, there are people like that, yes. obviously. Uh, but that's just not the overwhelming experience of the South, and um, quite frankly, I typically hear a lot of this from people who are white and who have never been there. Exactly, um, yeah. And they don't know people of color who live in the South. They don't know that, hey, there's actually a ton of black people in the South. Like, yeah. how about you fucking not act like they don't exist and don't matter? Um, yeah, it's, it's just easier, it's, you know? It's like, that it's that Biden attitude, the, you know, blah, 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 you're not black kind of thing. If you're in the South, you're not black, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I think just overall for a union, and this kind of melds into a whole other topic of the deep community organizing that um, Jane McGillivy advocates for. 
where her thoughts are very, um, she's, I don't know, she's a leftist type, um, old leftist, and she's basically like, you get people in their workplace where they have to be and get them building communities and understanding each other and understanding their power. And that is when they may start to change their beliefs to the beliefs of the people who give them power. As of now, a lot of people are making choices based on what won't take more from them or what they perceive won't take more from them. And that's, like, Democrats don't realize that they advocate for this. They advocate for make the choice that's going to take the least from you. And then when people in the rural South do exactly what they think that is, they're bad and racist. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and it's just the way we're supposed to, you know, pigeonhole everyone down. Um, and it, it, too many people don't realize they're playing the exact same game that they claim to hate. Um, and, and it's sad, but you see it often. Um, but with that, I, I feel like I got to ask real quick, cause I know you divulged it recently to me. Um, and I know we probably got to wind up, but, um, I feel like this is a great thing to, you know, that builds to this. So I know you said that you had voted for Biden in 2016, and I, you know I I know a lot of people personally that did, um, and I respect why they did it, and I get why they get, did it. Uh, personally, I voted green this time, and I did uh, actually in, in previous elections too, and I often do. Uh, and in fact, in that election, this most recent one, I was a campaign manager for a Texas congressional candidate that got completely screwed over uh, by it by the Democrat in that race. Uh, because Wendy Davis is fucking awful. Um, but I got to ask, do you feel still like you made the right choice? And do you feel like you're going to continue voting um, Democrats in general? Um, It's hard to say because when I say, like when I think about why I made the choice that I did, like I voted for Hillary in 2016 and Biden in 2020. And if I'm like, scratch all the nuance, scratch all the politics. What was the reason I did that? And it's because I was scared of Trump. Yeah. Period. You know? And I still am. And so it's hard for me to be completely objective because I have that primal emotion of fear that is probably not going to go away. Okay. And and that's fair. And I and honestly that, that specter, that, that giant titan that Honestly, liberal establishment and media built up, you know, because if, if you actually look back at the numbers when Trump was first uh, deciding he was running and, you know, he was holding these little events. Um, and if you read a few books on the subject uh, matter at the time, especially from people that were in the know, like right there when this was all happening, um, they'll all say that Trump wasn't even really taking it seriously at the time. He was trying to, you know, use it as a ploy to help negotiate a new deal for The Apprentice. Um and but because of the wild things he was starting to say, um, liberals basically like establishment establishment liberals were like, you know what, this will be a cakewalk. Let's prop this guy up, and it's a practice they do often. They do it especially in lower races, but they will prop up someone that they think will be the easy win. But the problem is they completely ignored the fact that yes, he was saying these awful, crazy things. But if you go back and watch. In many respects, he was also speaking as a populist at the time, um, which yeah. which his people were actually telling him to do. It was all, you know, an act. But, um, you know, he was intending to 
you know, do this thing. Um, but once he started catching steam, he's like, fuck it, let's run with it. And at this point, the networks are kind of shying off from me because of this shit I'm saying. Uh, so it might not be able to get the apprentice gig. It's looking like maybe I can actually get this presidential gig. Um, though, if you go back and look, it actually still looks, he still looks very shocked the day of the election. Um, but, you know, they built him up as this, as, as this titan, and then it got away from them. Um, but I, I'm sure you would agree that it's kind of a monster they helped build, and they're, they're going to continue oh, yeah. probably doing so. And then a lot of the time, like Trump was one of the first times I've seen a candidate get the type of treatment I feel like they should. Because as a public servant, I feel like you should constantly be under scrutiny. Um, it should be honest, which a lot of, it wasn't always honest, but it should be honest, but it should be constant. Um, but the atmosphere under Democrats when they have control, it seems like it just helps harvest and build up the next wave of the great Republicans that then they're going to put the worst ones in the power. And when those come into power, like Trump, they'll put in all these policies that accurately get labeled as demonstrative. But then the Democrats will come in and they'll either, you know, keep them in place and not say anything or they'll fight like hell in court to try to keep them. Um, so with that, would you agree with that sentiment? Oh, yeah. And so something interesting about my experiences in Washington and I haven't kept up with what they still do. But in 2016 they, or 2015, they did caucuses for their primaries. Yes. And those are really fucking cool, but they're really inaccessible. Um, because you have to be in a building, you have to have that day and time available, you have to be able to be there for hours. Um, but you're able to talk to people. And, um, yeah, just really get, get an idea of what the people in your actual district feel about that candidate. And something that bothered me back then was this duality of Trump can't win and the only person who can beat Trump is Hillary Clinton. He's <laughs> like, yeah. which is it? Is this the candidate who can't win? Or is this the candidate that we need, you know, this, like, on paper, perfect Democrat to beat? Like, I don't know. And so that kind of, I don't know. I'm very soured with electoral politics. For me, I'm very much just a harm reduction voter. And here with the fellow workers to be like, we need to be changing the things that are closest to us, our landlords, our bosses. And I don't think there's no use for electoral politics, but I do believe that for me personally, um, my input in it is so not informed and not passionate, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's not that I don't care, but I have no real passion for it um, and not, not a lot of faith in it. And so I would never tell somebody not to vote. Um, but yeah, yeah, I I'm, agree, yeah. Yeah, but I'm also just like, ugh, is this how we're going to win anything substantial? I don't know. You know, that's that's a fair take, and I, I agree with, like, the Ralph Nader take on this uh, subject, actually, which is, you know, the, the fights have to be small and local first. Um, and, you know, after my work with the Green Party and my um, and trying to help out some of the other smaller parties, um, I've noticed that, you know, I, I'm all for them running, like, whoever they think is their best candidate at the presidential role because there are certain requirements that the party has, that these parties have to meet. Um, so you have to run someone in those spots. 
Um, but I feel like they desperately need more attention at these smaller local levels um, to start building up that passion again. But I feel like the problem is so many of these voices are basically like sheep, what I call sheepdog Democrats, um, like, like AOCs and these these people like that that are like, oh, I'm going to uh, be like Tea Party Democrats, uh, which is what they were supposed to be anyways. Um, and I'm going to you know, get elected, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to change the system from within and they never realize, and you see it left and right, time after time, AOC, all of them. Um, when they get in there, you know, they basically get neutered immediately. They get, you know, sheepdogged in. They're meant to sheepdog progressives and leftists in by being like, oh, well, see, the, the these are the voices of the Democrats. They represent me without realizing that 99% of the party is just these corporate people. Um, and, you know, again, they'll say a few things, but inevitably it's just like if you try to jump into a shark, you're not going to change it. You're just going to get eaten. Um, so I feel like yeah. if, if enough people of these people that are trying to make sparks would basically turn away and try to help form an actual movement in the same way that we're seeing these little pockets of like labor, labor movements, if we could somehow see them, um, like form some type of people's party or something even at this point because honestly as much as i respect some of these parties like the green party etc i feel like they already have like a stigma attached if you can form a people's party a populist party um one that doesn't that more accurately matches america which isn't perfectly you know quote-unquote left or right it's somewhere a combination of all of these things um and tries to break out i feel like there could be an actual movement uh, but at the same time, it seems though everyone is trying to do harm reduction, which I get, but it ends up pushing everything further right, if that makes sense, like over time. And I feel like you can actually see it as it's happening. Yeah. And like, so <laughs> anarchist syndicalism is basically where, like in the most basic terms, uh, as workers, you can use your power to change yeah. everything. Yeah. Um, and that concept came to be well before this insane corporate monopoly um, and this insane level of corporate lobbying. And so for me, while I wouldn't say I've abandoned electoral politics, I firmly believe that the biggest changes are going to have to be with workers who are demanding from the companies that are really controlling our government. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. Honestly... That's the problem with a lot of these protests. Last year, we saw some of the biggest protests in human history, um, and nothing happened. In fact, the Biden administration went backwards on most of these things. Police are getting more funding, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem is, and we're seeing it again right now, we're seeing all these like organized protests, all getting you know their permits and, and everything. None of them, none of them are disrupting capital, and as a result, nothing will happen. So if workers can start doing such a thing, that I agree. That's where a lot of the biggest changes are going to occur, but it's 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 going to have to be. I feel like in conjunction with electoral politics, sadly, um, if that makes sense. Uh, that way, it can be like an all sides approach, slowly but surely. Um, it, yeah, and it, the way I think it can really transform into meaningful electoral politics is, uh, I believe that people want to. I, I know that people want to have their material conditions improved. Yes. So say, like, I know there are mixed feelings on Chris Smalls, so this is just a visible example. Say Chris Smalls, who has 
literally changed the lives of thousands of people in his area who probably vote in his district is like, hey, I've changed your lives this way. Now what do you think about this? And I think these labor movements, these people who are truly changing people's lives, truly fighting power for them against all odds and against their own interests at times, I think those are the people who are going to just rise up and become, uh, with support and with encouragement, this political party that we want. Um, And I think that that's, like I said, people have their own feelings about Chris Smalls, but I think that that figure, um, you know, that Eugene Debs, uh, I think that's going to start popping up. Um, start influencing local politics more and then get bigger. People don't want to vote for people that they don't believe are going to change their lives. They do want to vote for people who have changed their lives. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair take. I mean, why uh, why believe a politician until they've proven themselves, essentially? So, yeah, I mean, if, if we can get figures like that actually involved in some type of actual movement, I mean, it'd be fantastic, obviously. Yeah, I think we'll see. I I have a lot of faith in it. I have a lot of faith in some sort of labor party, but I also believe that it has to come organically. And yeah. um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> but this is going to be a really interesting time in history. The material conditions are so similar to previous labor, labor movements, and our access to technology and access to each other is so increased. I, I have a lot of faith in it, and I'm willing to put in the work and have been putting in the work, and I see so many other people doing it, too. So, right. I just, oh, you know, I, yeah. I feel good about it, and it feels dumb when the world's falling apart to feel good about something, but I do no. feel good about the labor movement. No, honestly, it's not. We, we all need to seek out light, and if we can find some form of light and we want to grab onto it, I mean, that's it's a powerful, beautiful thing, so... Um, I'm just going to go ahead and ask you one last question before, uh, before I let you go. Um, but where do you see this country in five years? I think, I feel like that's a great way to end this. Oh, no. Um, I'm scared. Uh, uh, I don't know. I think it all hinges on the labor movement. Uh, if the corporations and federal government crack down, like, the troubles, <laughs> you know, like yeah. from Irish history, we're in the troubles if the labor movement can't fucking get a hold of this country. Um, so, yeah. better get to work. <laughs> yeah, and with the blunt tool of the Fed basically being utilized right now, it's not a good look. So, um, so honestly, I I sincerely appreciate your time. The entire reason I'm doing this is because I feel like people aren't having enough actual legit conversations anymore. And I feel like that's kind of becoming a lost art, and it's it's a tragedy, in my opinion, at least. Um, so I'm always seeking out interesting people to talk to. Um, so, But I sincerely appreciate your time. Um, and, yeah, it's going to take people like yourself and Donzinger and, and people like that making actually these these ripples and fighting, you know, to make actual change. So I uh, appreciate your time, and I, s- I appreciate your, uh, your efforts, too. Yeah, it was great talking to you, and I'm sure we will chat again soon. Yeah, yeah, you, uh, you're welcome back anytime, so thank you so much. And uh, I'll let you know whenever I get this all done in, uh, in, in edit, um, and I'm working on figuring out how I'm going to be releasing them. I'm thinking uh, every first and third Thursday of the month, but I'm not quite sure yet, but uh, I'll, I'll definitely let you know. Okay, 
I'll get it out because I like making people listen to me talk. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Bye. Peace.